This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm very excited to introduce you to Kristen Ragason. And I have a question uh, to start off for my listeners. What if it were easy to stop living for money and to have the health, wealth, and life that you dream of? And that solution had nothing to do with politics or outside force as well. These are some of the questions that today's guest, Kristen Ragason, poses in her new book, The End of Scarcity, The Dawn of the New Abundant World. Here today to talk about that book and her life is the author, Kristen Ragason. Welcome to Unforking Story, Kristen. Oh, thanks, Mike. So nice to be here with you. I'm happy to have you here. And Kristen, I have to ask you the question I ask all of my authors, um, which is, where does your story as an author begin? It's a great question. You know, I think it really started in 2008 when the big financial crisis was coming. And um, I saw, even though I'd grown up in the money world my whole life, that I was missing something important. <laughs> something was wrong in my worldview. And that set me on this huge adventure that led to writing this book. All right. Well, tell me, what were you uh, what were you doing at the time? Were you were you working in in finance? Yeah, you know, even I'll tell you, as a little girl, I grew up having to earn my allowance, which was a dollar a week, explaining to my father how the stock market worked. And so, you know, so my sister and I would come and if we passed the test, then we got our dollar. But, you know, if we didn't, we had to go back and relearn. So I was still shocked when I finished college that I went to go work at Merrill Lynch and become like a traditional stockbroker. And I thought, gosh, this is something I would never really want to do until I sat with people and I saw how much angst and worry there is around money. And um, I was hooked because I thought, wow, I could really help empower clients and people and say the system really can work for you. So I felt that way probably all the way until about the financial crisis started to come. I got lucky enough to see it ahead of time. But um, when it came up, promises, all different kinds of things we built our world on did not stand the test of time. Yeah. And it was pretty scary. You know, the whole idea of the American dream and the markets being a tool of that, um, I really had sort of an existential crisis because I could see it didn't add up and um, I was missing something. And uh, and at that point, I, I really set on to find out where does this pernicious scarcity, where does this pernicious risk and instability come from? And I was shocked when I found out. 
Well, a few few observations there. Number one, uh, the word pernicious totally underused, I think, um, and you used it like twice. Um, but but really, I mean, we're talking about a time when, yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of a, a scary time. It was an angry time because you know around that time you had the the collapse of the housing markets. Um, I mean, Enron had already happened by that point in time, but that was a, that was a big story. And then you know, Madoff was. You know, this is like Madoff time too, where you're really seeing like the worst of the worst when it comes to, um, you know, finance and financial services. Um, you know, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it really was, and it was all so fast and intense. Um, even when the market sell-off came, you know, the, clearly the markets were at lower numbers, but it was 500, 600, which, you know, maybe today would be like 2000 points a day. Um, you thought we would maybe get to the point where the market was actually at zero before it was over. It's really, um, I think, it just unnerving for most people in the sense that here's where you're storing your wealth, you're storing what you've received for contributing. And you expect we have some basic social agreements, especially in using money as a society, that we need to be able to trust these agreements. And you could see that we couldn't. Um, what I actually found out, because I was sure that the issue was economic policy at the time, and we still, you know, we still can argue the failures of that, or, or political policy. And what I found is that none of this was the case, um, and certainly not even social issues, which are much more at the forefront today than they were 10 years ago. But the issue is monetary. So the big crisis that we're facing, that our generation, um, the generations be after us, before us, is that we're, we literally do not have money. The dollar actually is mortgage debt. <laughs> so it's it's not representing mortgage debt. It is someone's debt. So even the money that we save in our accounts actually is the quarter flip side, the head side of the quarter. It's money. And if that money doesn't circulate, the people who owe the debt cannot capture it to repay it. And when debts are repaid, money is extinguished. And so what caused 2008 was the inability to create more debt fast enough, ironically speaking, because we really have even at this point been conditioned to say, gosh, it was irresponsible debt or the bank should have been should not have been lending when in fact the system would not have collapsed if more people could have borrowed more debt and more debt so it definitely has a ponzi scheme feeling to it and of course obviously it collapse is at some point because you can't constantly borrow um so why are we using a money system this way yeah and we haven't for for many generations before money was not mortgage debt so what's the solution? I mean, and I'm curious as to kind of what you what, what you chose to kind of research and write about in the end of scarcity, because um, I'm curious to what your point of view is. And I, and I have to say, I'm looking at your book cover, um, which I love. I mean, it's so it's so eye catching. Um, but of course, what, what I really want to know is what what's in that book that that we can learn from. Yeah, it really shows us why and how this is an illusion of scarcity on every level, on even resources, on what what we consider money. And even though it's a very real experience in our lives, sometimes we have more access to money, sometimes we have less. Many people and more people are um, certainly with the inflation that we're seeing, that also seems to be quite pernicious. Uh, it, it seems like a, a crazy statement, but the truth of the fact is that this sense of scarcity, this not enoughness, this living for the money is created by an, it's an illusion that's sustained in society. 
And so the end of scarcity takes you through exactly how this is possible and where the source is. And then monetary history in a very fun, fascinating and engaging way. Um, people literally tell me they can't put the book down, which is exciting, especially for a book about money, yeah. <laughs> but it's really about life. And um, so we have the capacity to actually reshape the system and in our own communities first, we don't even need to get politicians or Jay Powell or anyone in any position of power to agree. And we can retool the way money is supposed to operate, certainly through alternative currencies. And now the age old separation comes where we start to see wealth is actually not money or money is not wealth, but money is in fact the technology that assists us in the expression and contribution and sharing of our wealth with one another. Mm -hmm. So these are, these are pretty heavy concepts here. Um, so how do you, how, how would, how would I explain it to, let's say I have a daughter right now. Um, she's a, uh, a junior, um, studying finance is a big internship with, with Citigroup this summer. Right. Um, what, what is she going to take away from this? Like, what is she going to learn from, from this book? This is probably the most important book she can read because it's going to undo a lot of the indoctrinated learning that she's that she's going to be immersed in, which is just simply not true. So for an example, um, we're taught that the Fed creates the amount of money, they create the amount of reserves, which then banks can give loans off of, and that the Fed can control how much money is in circulation. That's absolutely not true. Um, banks can pretty much create as much what we think is money, Federal Reserve notes or bank credit, based on how much people are going to borrow. And so if people start, start pardon me, stop borrowing, we get a bust in the markets and a bust in the economy. So these booms and busts, whether people have jobs uh, or you know can borrow or do healthy investment actually come from this misdesign of the money. And so for her generation, I firmly believe that you know people her age are literally are going to have a much more abundant lifestyle and possibility than what even we're we have enjoyed or that will enjoy as time goes on because they're going to get together and redesign the currency as the founding fathers did as they did in the 1800s during wildcat banking abraham lincoln tried to do um and they're going to find out the history that sort of selectively somehow disappeared that uh the colonists left england because they were in debt and it wasn't really for religious freedom, maybe that was a bonus, but it was for monetary freedom. And so we're up against probably maybe in the next 12 to 24 months, the biggest money revolution that we've ever seen. The dollar is going to get challenged. A whole bunch of things are getting ready to happen. And so the more, especially this generation starts to understand about the proper, simple formula of creating money, they're going to break open the dawn of the new abundant world. So I have a question, which um, I'm sure some of my listeners <laughs> will think is ignorant, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm okay with vulnerability. Uh, if our if our banking system and our and our money system is really based on debt, um, wouldn't it encourage the government to keep interest rates as low as possible, so we'd have more access to debt? Versus, you know, right now, I, look at credit card interest rates are are it, like the mafia charges less money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, then the 19, 20, 25% or whatever it is. 
Um, so is, is there some, is there something there? Like why, why are interest rates so high? That's, that's uh, some pre-tremors of a big earthquake. That's, that's the problem. It's, it shows you they've already begun to lose control of the system. Now, you can argue, is it by a whole host of reasons? Is it being done on purpose? Is it being done from stupidity? Probably a whole probably a whole bit of all of it, right? Um, every time that we've had a world war or we've had a big um, calamity, the money system has changed. Uh, so when World War One, we got a new form of money, Bretton Woods, um, you know, and money is absolutely not backed by gold. Many people want to go back to that, but it just doesn't work. There's not enough gold. It's not fast enough. You can't prove if it's real. You can't carry a bag of rocks around. So we are on the precipice of, again, a massive uh, reorganization of our money system. And that is scary. You know, it's it's very unnerving to a lot of people. But at the same point in time, this is what, without even me knowing it, I became obsessed about this topic. Anybody that was around me, I really felt sorry for them in the past 10 years, because <laughs> this is what we talked about. And, um, you know, until they found an exit. But it's 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 the most exciting thing because we really do we, we're getting the the wisdom back that our great grandparents had. People in the 1800s walked around talking about these things, and so the younger generations with more of an affinity for technology um, are going to understand that uh, production things that we produce, whether it's Toyota cars or consulting services, are what should back the currency. And um, and the amount of currency in circulation should be limited to the supply and demand of whatever's being produced. So we're going to see companies start issuing currency. We're going to see communities doing it, maybe backed by food. Regional farmers could do it. Builders, wellness centers, education centers. So we're going to get sort of this biosphere of beautiful new forms, verifiable um, uh, really tickets of exchange. And this is going to strengthen all of these money systems because it's, it's actually very easy for the dollar to collapse, believe it or not. So you know, is there, is there one or, or, or a small set of behaviors people can change now on an individual level? Um, you know, um, you know, to, to help, you know, with the end of scarcity. Definitely. You could even break it into age groups, you know? So I would say the under 30 group really, really needs to get the wonderful wisdom that's in the book right away. They should have had it in kindergarten. You know, it, it does amaze me. My father knew so much of this because, you know, he was born a long time ago now, but the textbooks were different. They changed after the 1950s. So he had the real understanding of how money as a technology of exchange was supposed to work. And even if you get a PhD in economics from Harvard, you are not going to get this information. So the under 30 crowd needs to read this book. They'll probably read it in a day. And um, luckily it's written like an adventure story. It's really entertaining. And it's also written for people who have no experience with money. Um, because if money should make sense on the level of one plus one equals two, if it starts to get more complicated than that, then something again is not right. And then the over 30 crowd, I would say really 30 to 40, even if it seems hard, they really need to take a hard look at what they're doing for a living and make sure that it is in fact in alignment and really work to get it into alignment with what they love to do. That's that's in alignment with a passion. Now, I mean, this is true for all of us, but especially for them. 
And then, you know, when you start to get over the forties, uh, you know, into, into really every age group up there, but really I think forties through 60 to make sure that you're really getting to know your neighbors, building your communities, um, your families, having that be the core of, of really life, knowing your farmers and um, the fabric of our society really needs to be reinforced. And so um, it's, it, we often feel that we don't have time for that, but that is actually the basis of wealth. And so those are things that people should be doing right, really putting effort into every week, um, looking how they're living. Is it in alignment with passion? And, and so that that's really coming from flow. And all of a sudden we will have shifted the basis of society to something that's abundance-based um, because these passions are endless in us. And um, when we connect with one another and we reinforce all the unique gifts we have with one another, it also exponentially produces abundance. Right. So we should be able to, to get this done in the next couple of weeks, right? You know, we certainly <laughs> take steps. You know, I tell you, even reaching out to one neighbor one week, you know, once a week, you know, it, it just again, and then we start to get into these habits, um, or even to go to a, a local, you know, look up one of your farmers, look up some of your producers. It is amazing what's happening in communities where communities are building these networks. Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause talking about the book and your expertise for a moment, because, you know, part of uncorking a story is really getting to the story behind the story, which is your story. And one way I like to do that is by asking you questions about pop culture. So I'm curious, Kristen, when you were growing up in New Canaan, Connecticut, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Probably the Jetsons. <laughs> Why the Jetsons? That's an interesting choice. <laughs> you know, they always just seemed so, you know, ex the life was an adventure. Right. And you I was sort of always dazzled by the amazing adventure, the amazing inventions that would support the whole idea of adventure and really enjoying experiencing this life in the wonderment that that it absolutely is rooted in. And so I think I think if I remember, I haven't seen the Jetsons in a long time, um, but, you know, you sort of had that joie de vivre, even amongst all of that technology. Right. Two things I want from the Jetsons. One, um, Elroy's backpack, you know, his little jet pack. And he, he used to fly around because I think we were promised that and never came. Um, but also the the treadmill for the dog. Um, you know, I wish my dog could actually use a treadmill because it would save me a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we can wish. I bet those things are pretty easy. We could get someone maybe on crowdfunding to make them. <laughs> That's right. We'll, we'll, we'll look, we'll look, uh, we'll look for that after this call. How about, um, uh, well, you know, I do I do a lot of uh, these with authors uh, books. What were some of your favorite authors, uh, some of your favorite books to read growing up? You know, um, I, I, you know, I probably really got into any any book, maybe even actually as a young girl, I read all the first uh, all the biographies or or stories about the first ladies. I think that was one of my favorite things I got into. I really was not much of a reader when I was little and I wanted to be. And, um, and then as I got older, it was always motivation books. Um, certainly when I was working at Merrill Lynch, I've, I've, I was there for 30, I was there for 28 years and now I'm at Raymond James. Um, uh, just the whole idea of 
um, self-motivation and how we could live a better life would be the avenue that I would go. And then it certainly got into spiritual books. I loved Eckhart Tolle um, and, <laughs> you know, um, any of these kinds of people. And then I, I, I loved mythology and Joseph Campbell and, um, you know, it's, I, I think I've always been interested in people and cultures and the idea of living in alignment with the empowerment, you know, the, the, the dreams and passions that are in each one of us. Right. Yeah. Eckhart Tolle can be pretty heavy. Um, I remember reading his, uh, some of his work over the summer and his concept of the pain body. I'd like, I needed to reread it like a few times. I'm like, I don't know if I get this, but I think I eventually wound up getting it. And I went through a huge Tony Robbins phase myself, um, kind of back in the day. But um, how about um, uh, things you learned about yourself during the writing process of this book? Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. and kind of what you're writing. How would you characterize your writing journey for this? You know, it was it was a pretty intense one, um, and I was quite naive about it when it started, because I would say that this book is truly a. a, a it, it easily 10 years, it may be 15 years of my life. Um, and it's it's a passion because I, I really believe we cannot free this world without easily changing the currency. <laughs> so the good news, the solution actually is really simple, even if we can't quite picture today, but it's so important that if we don't do it, um, we will we will really, um, you know, we'll, we'll be in a much worse position every year than we are today. So when I started this, I was optimistic, I was cheerful, you know, I already, you know, I had researched the stuff. And if I didn't know it, I could get on a plane and track the person down and say, excuse me, what did you mean when you said this on page 67? Um, so I entered the really crusty world of monetary reform which um, you get these brilliant guys, um, a lot of older men who have studied this for years, and then they fight with one another. So this was shocking to me. I was like, wait a minute, you both are brilliant. Couldn't we bring the, oh, no, we can't. <laughs> so um, I was naive about a lot of the battles of, of the ego that would go on, the lack of collaboration, and also the respect sort of of, of the beauty of, of what they had learned. And um and then I have to say, I had to come very face to face with the pain of not having enough. And so where I had spent every day helping people with their money, um, I money to me has always been a very positive thing. I've always had really just thinking it sort of as a playful uh, invention that we've created to help us have, have a more wonderful and creative, rich life. So I didn't expect by going through all of this and um, the soberness of looking at the reality of history and how money is created that I experienced quite a lot of fear around what could happen when these systems collapse. And that, yeah. that, that took me by surprise. And then just, just having, I assume this is your first book. Yes. <laughs> so just kind of being a first time author, anything, did anything surprise you about either the writing or publishing process that, that you went through? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> and any hard lessons you learned? Any, any lessons you learned the hard way? So many, you know, it's, um, yeah, I, you know, I would even think building my business, my, you know, financial advisory business was exhausting and, and took hours and hours. And I would even say that was close to a vacation versus, you know, writing a book. It is amazing when you hold one book, you have no idea what it represents. Yeah. 
Right, so it gives you so much appreciation with each one and how it really is a life and, and a whole conglomeration of so many lives. Um, every bit of it shocked me. Um, every bit of it was by far more challenging. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of glad I didn't know. So I think you have to be in love with it and driven um, to want to really do it. Yeah, I think if if most people didn't really know or don't really know how much goes into or if they actually I'm sorry if they did know what goes into writing a book um that it is so far from your first draft um we'd have a lot fewer authors in the world you really would <laughs> you know you know still I think so if someone had told me I would have been like bah ha ha maybe for you right <laughs> you know and I would have been like you know and you have you you really do um I mean I think I I've, I wrote this book maybe three times. Um, you know, I first wrote it for myself, um, and then I wrote a, a version for other people, and um, I showed it to a good friend of mine who was an author, and he was like, "No, people want to know about you." Yeah. And I said, "My goodness, how do you do that with money?" And um, so I continued to research for four years, and then I had gone to India. I'd come back. I was incredibly jet lagged. And I kid you not that the book started in its final version, like within, I was trying to go to bed and, you know, so like that heavy, tired feeling from sleeping. And I just saw the book coming and it started telling me how it was going to be written. Um, so this, this book almost wrote itself, uh, even though, you know, that that's probably after eight years of research it came in four months like a freight train showing me image after image exactly the lineup and i would just quickly capture an outline and then sit the next day and try to translate the pictures yeah yeah, yeah you were you were hitting flow as they say in the literary community so very uh, very exciting and, and if you can go back in time and and give the younger kristen some words of advice you know maybe it's the kristen who was making a a dollar uh by, by telling her father about the stock market um what would you tell your younger self? I'd say, stop worrying. Don't worry so much. You know, it really does all work out. And, um, you know, I, I think also through the process of writing, you get to know the worst critic that could ever possibly exist. Yeah. <laughs> That's also shocking. Like you have, you have no idea that you could think such negative thoughts. And um, in a way, there's something nice about that because you burn it out. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, and I would say just let it come and let it be and, you know, commune with your goal, commune with the the whole why of it as much as you possibly can. Well, there you go. Uh, we've been talking with Kristen Ragason about the end of scarcity, the dawn of a new abundant world. Kristen, where can people go and buy this book? Well, it's pretty much everywhere. You can come to my website, which is kristenragason.com. Um, you can definitely find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, Apple Books, um, and pretty much you can get it from independent booksellers. So it is, it's been doing quite well, thank goodness, because it is not your more boring or complicated money story. It's actually quite easy to read. And uh, it's it's it does pack a punch um, in the sense that it will, completely show you exactly what's going on, but it won't leave you hopeless. In fact, it'll oh, give you such optimism for the future. Right. So. And, uh, you know, if you're thinking about gifts for, uh, for grads, I know it's early, you know, we're not at dad's and grads time of year yet, but certainly a, um, a great gift for a college graduate. I will be buying three of these books. I have triplets. 
uh, who are not graduating this year, but next, but they will each be getting a copy of this book. So if, if you guys are listening, it's no, no longer a surprise. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Wow. Triplets. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I'm adding to this conversation. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, Kristen, <laughs> uh, I will be sure to put links to your social media. I see that you are Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. I see that you are dabbling in TikTok. So <laughs> Be sure to put all of those links into the show notes here. Uh, Kristen, it was great uncorking your story. Thank you for stopping by. Oh, so nice. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.